In an article from warmsodamag.com, author Sam Fischel describes some of the popular color choices of the 1990s. He said, quote, There's an aphoristic template for online memes that go something like this. In a four-square template, four images appear. A Tamagotchi, a Netscape icon, a can of Surge, a Blockbuster VHS tape, the list of potential permutations goes on and on. No matter what vaguely nostalgic items are used, the message at the end is always the same, lending itself to mimic imitation time and time again. Only 90s kids will remember. Whether they're taken seriously or as a joke, there's a palette of design choices that colored the 1990s, especially for the children that grew up during the decade. Though we don't often associate a color palette with an entire decade, a 90s kid would have been hard-pressed to have made it out of the decade without owning at least one piece of clothing or other memorabilia that was not unapologetically teal, purple, yellow, or any of their pastel variants. End quote. At one point in my childhood home, my room was painted off-white with royal blue and teal sponge-painted accents, and my sister's room was a dark teal. It coordinated quite nicely with her teal, pink, and purple comforter, if I do say so myself. I guess what I'm trying to say is that my sister's room looked like the 1990s threw up in it, and I mean, the throw-up really went everywhere because her room screamed 90s. From a young age, my sister was well-versed in music, art, and literature. Hanging in her pastel purple room at my dad's house for many years was a framed piece from artist Keith Haring. If I remember correctly, it was called Untitled Pastel People. In the painting, we see Haring's classic black outlined human-like figures intertwined with each other, and they are all covered in pastel colors like purple, green, orange, and pink. How my sister became familiar with and a fan of Keith Haring at such a young age is sort of a mystery to me. But nonetheless, his artwork must have spoken to her, and as you will soon learn, it spoke to millions of people all around the world who felt the same way. With that being said, on today's show, you will learn all about the creative life and career of notable artist Keith Haring. Although his contributions to the world of art were sadly cut short, his impact has been no less significant, and you will soon learn why. So grab your paintbrush, a canvas, and a boombox. Here we go. Hello, and thank you so very much for tuning into the Pop Culture Retrospective Podcast, a show inspired by, and in memory of, my big sister Rebecca, and her love for all things pop culture, especially the people, places, and things of the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s. My name is Amy Lewis, and I'm your captain aboard this pop culture time machine. If this is your first time tuning in, thank you for selecting the show. I hope you like it, and if you are a long-term listener, thanks for joining me again on this journey. You are tuning into episode number 35. Keith Haring, a notable artist who became a household name in the 1980s and 1990s. Keith Haring was born on May 4, 1958 in Reading, Pennsylvania, to parents Joan and Alan Haring. Alan worked as an engineer. He was the oldest of four children, and apparently his parents really liked the letter K, as in addition to Keith, of course, they had three younger daughters, K, Karen, and Kristen. I can't stand it when people do that. 
Oh, my God. According to some people, when he was a little kid, Herring resembled a young buddy Holly with his perfectly styled hair and thick, framed glasses. Taking a cue from his dad, who loved to draw cartoons, Keith, too, developed a passion for art at a young age. They would often draw together. His father would draw a line and Keith would add one until the whole page was filled. He also looked up to artists and creators like Walt Disney and Dr. Seuss. As a matter of fact, at one time, Herring said, quote, I've always wanted to work for Walt Disney. That's what I thought I was going to do when I grew up. I think Keith Herring is my spirit animal because for a big chunk of my life, I thought I was going to work for Disney for my career, too. I fortunately did have the opportunity to work there, but it was for a brief period of time. Sometimes I still think, though, about going back to work there because I live in a godforsaken winter hellhole. Anyways, in 1976, Herring graduated from high school and he briefly attended the Ivy School of Professional Art in Pittsburgh. His parents and guidance counselor encouraged him to attend a commercial arts school. He dropped out after just two semesters as the school's focus was on commercial art and he realized he didn't want to work in that field. By the late 1970s, Herring moved to New York City and enrolled at the School of Visual Arts, which is located there. In the Big Apple, he discovered a thriving and vibrant arts community. He was home. Herring was also an out and proud gay man, and New York City afforded him the opportunity to live his life even more openly in a supportive community. He became fascinated by graffiti and graffiti art. Believe it or not, Herring was expelled from the School of Visual Arts after he created graffiti on school property. He unfortunately never graduated. Despite not finishing school, his art career, though, would soon flourish. But before we get into that, let's discuss a description of Herring's style, just in case you are not super familiar with it. What follows is a brief excerpt from an article from artlife.com. Keith Herring was one of the most widely celebrated artists of 1980s New York, and his work is still hugely popular today. His vibrant, eye-catching pieces are grounded in street culture, yet also respected in the art world. And while his cartoon-like drawings may seem simplistic compared to more traditional forms, Herring's art is no less thought-provoking. Like the hieroglyphics of the past and the emojis of the present, the visual representations created by Herring succeeded in saying a great deal. And at the heart of his work were his highly symbolic figures, outlines of humans signifying the people within modern society. Using his distinct artistic style, Herring conveyed a variety of incredibly important themes and ideas through these characters. Herring is most famous for his street art, which also took influence from the pop art movement, utilizing thick black lines and bright black colors that became synonymous with his creations. Whether painting energetic motifs or commenting on serious social issues, his work always evoked wit and charm and was brought to life by the strategic use of lines and dots to convey sound, movement, and texture. End quote. In the New York subways, Herring started creating artwork that he would become famous for. He noticed that whenever an advertisement was taken down off the wall, it was often covered by black matte paper. So, one day, he ran back up to the city streets, purchased some sidewalk chalk, and went back down and began creating artwork which would eventually be seen by millions of people. He did this almost constantly for a period of time, and he'd often create at least 30 original drawings per day with black paper and chalk between 1980 and 1985. A common saying in photography is that the best camera is the one that you have with you, and I think the same goes for art, more specifically, drawing. 
The best medium or instrument for art is the one that you have in your hand. I think that really applies to Keith Haring. He created art out of any materials he could find, even something as simple as sidewalk chalk. He wanted art to be accessible to everyone and easy for them to understand. Because of his unique art pieces, he was periodically featured on the news. I'll post a link to an interview clip in the show notes. Despite his eventual popularity for creating these unique pieces of art, he was arrested multiple times for vandalism. In one clip from an early edition of Sunday Morning, you will see him actually getting arrested on camera. For chalk drawings, no less. Herring viewed traditional art galleries and museums as elitist and not accessible to everyone. He thought that subways and trains with graffiti on them were just as inspiring. He was also very conscious of trying not to take away from the graffiti artists that he met along his journey. Most of them were artists who were black. He knew that they were trailblazers, and he never forgot that. Herring also found inspiration in the nightclubs that he frequented while living in New York. One of his favorites was called Paradise Garage. In this club, everyone was welcome, and everyone was there because of a shared love of music and dancing. And I don't know about you, but between my age and the pandemic, a nightclub is the last place you will find me. Staying up past 8 or 9 p.m., Crowds of people with drinks spilling everywhere, loud music, bathrooms with no toilet paper that, and that don't lock, and sticky floors, one way in and one way out of the space. No thanks. No thanks. Another club that Herring frequented with Madonna was called Fun House. It would open at 10 p.m. No thanks. On Saturday nights and stay open until 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. Oh, that sounds terrible. That does not sound fun to me. And speaking of music, Herring almost always created art while listening to his favorite tunes. He enjoyed listening to hip-hop and reggae music, among other genres. You can almost see music in his drawings. It's almost as if his characters are dancing in the pictures. As his name became more well-known in artist circles, Herring had his first exhibit in New York in 1981. During this time, he also had a billboard in Times Square and designed watches for Swatch and worked with Absolute Vodka. Between 1982 and 1989, Herring created about 50 public art pieces, which were completed in cities all over the world. Many of them were used for charities like orphanages, children's daycares, hospitals, etc. One theme I learned about Herring was his commitment and passion for bringing art to children. He greatly valued exposing children to the world of art at a young age. He wanted to show them art before they were critiqued for their art and did it for just pure enjoyment. He appreciated the innocence of childhood. He would often collaborate with communities on murals. For example, he'd create the outline of a mural in an inner city and would have the kids come help him color it in. When the Statue of Liberty celebrated its centennial, Herring worked with 1,000 inner city kids to create a mural in her honor. As his popularity grew, Herring's artwork could be found in galleries and museums all over the world. Some pieces would sell for as high as $350,000. His artwork was used for everything from the backdrop of a hunger prevention concert to MTV set decorations. Back when MTV actually played music videos and enlightened us with informative and educational shows and news. I'm not bitter. Anyways, further throughout the course of his career, Herring had over 50 one-man shows. 
In addition to his impressive accomplishments as a young artist, impressive too were his friendships with celebrities like Madonna, who we just talked about, Andy Warhol, Timothy Leary, and Yoko Ono. Madonna once performed at the aforementioned Paradise Garage for Keith Haring's birthday in 1984. She was dressed in a pink leather jacket with matching skirt with Keith Haring's unforgettable designs drawn on it in black ink. She sang Dress You Up, and it looked like it was an excellent performance. She asked Haring to design some of her outfits and sets for one of her tours. When Madonna got married, he was, of course, invited, and Warhol was Haring's plus one for the event. This was a far cry from Haring and Madonna's early days when Madonna could often be found crashing on his couch when she was a struggling artist. Shameless plug, if you want to learn more about Madonna's incredible rise to fame, please check out episode number 17 of the Pop Culture Retrospective Podcast. I had no idea what Madonna had to go through to get to where she is today. It is an inspiring story, so please check it out. And it's also um, one of the most popular episodes that I have done thus far. But anyways, back to the show. Much of Herring's artwork had political and social commentary. For example, he created a mural to help bring awareness to the cocaine and crack epidemic that hit New York really hard. In the original mural, which can still be seen today near some handball courts in Harlem, we can see an orange background with Herring's classic black outlined characters, one being a skeleton this time who is holding a $0 bill, which is starting to burn, perhaps signifying how much money and lives were wasted on the addictive substance. It has been repainted and restored over the years. Harlem was hit particularly hard by the crack epidemic during the 1980s and early 1990s. In contrast to the social issues depicted in some of his artwork, one of Herring's most notable works is called Radiant Baby. His image of a red baby crawling with lines around the child shows energy radiating. This work was inspired by his connection with Christianity and was a nod to religious figures like the Virgin Mary. Herring once said about babies, quote, They are the purest and most positive experience of human existence. End quote. Herring's artwork could also be found gracing the covers of magazines like the one he did for Vanity Fair, where two of his classic figures are holding up a red heart for Valentine's Day. In 1986, Herring opened up a pop shop where people could buy various items with his artwork on it, like posters, t-shirts, and magnets. People had started to steal his artwork out of the subways and would sell it or reprint it on knockoff clothing and shoes. So he decided to make his artwork more accessible. He wanted people who were interested in his artwork, but perhaps didn't have the funds to purchase an original piece for tens of thousands of dollars, to be able to buy an inexpensive shirt or button. He once said, quote, If commercialization is putting my art on a shirt so that a kid who can't afford a $30,000 painting can buy one, then I'm all for it. End quote. He also painted a mural on the Berlin Wall, of course, prior to its fall in 1989, that same year. The mural was 100 yards long. The mural showed off his classic figures, colored red and black, interlocked with each other against a yellow background, perhaps a nod to the German flag. 1987 was an incredibly challenging year for Herring as he was sadly diagnosed with AIDS. Herring had lost many, many friends to AIDS, and his anxiety about getting the disease unfortunately came to fruition. Despite the worrisome diagnosis, Herring had a renewed sense of purpose, feeling more than ever that he had to spread the love and accessibility of artwork urgently before his time came to an end. He would create as many as 40 paintings per day. 
Many of these works focused on the AIDS epidemic, which was a pretty commendable thing to do because not many people were talking about the disease, especially those individuals who were living with it. He was definitely ahead of his time. A lot of Herring's celebrity friends stopped inviting him to high-profile events when he started to become more of an AIDS activist, but that didn't stop him from speaking out and supporting efforts to help treat and research the illness. He often donated money to support advocacy efforts. During this time, he created some memorable art pieces, including one that has three yellow people recreating the hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil gestures. Wording on the top of the drawing says, ignorance equals fear. And on the bottom, it says, silence equals death. Fight AIDS, act up. Act Up, if you are not familiar with it, stands for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was an organization that formed during the AIDS crisis to fight for access to medication to help treat the disease that was killing tens of thousands of people all over the world. The group also advocated for research on the disease, and as a result of their incredible efforts, which it is incredible what they did, they managed to pave the way for medical treatment that has kept over half a million Americans who are HIV positive and millions more all over the world alive. If you are not familiar with just how detrimental AIDS and HIV was to the world and the discrimination the gay community faced as a result, or even if you just want a refresher, I highly recommend you watch the movie how to Survive a Plague. It's a documentary film, and you learn a lot about the ACT UP organization. I saw it a number of years ago, and the movie is profound, to say the least. Profound. It is one of the best and most emotionally moving documentaries I have ever seen in my life. You can rent it on Amazon and give the film all of your focus. Turn off your phone, be present, take it all in you will be better for it. And bring a box of tissues for happy and sad tears. Oh, and you're welcome. You are welcome. In addition to the artwork done to advocate for AIDS awareness, he also created art that encouraged safe sex, another crucial, albeit controversial, unfortunately, issue that certainly needed to be and needs to be said and addressed. In 1989, Herring founded the Keith Herring Foundation, the organization helps with circulating his artwork, and it also provides grants for children in need who have been impacted by AIDS. The organization still lives on today, and their website is an invaluable resource on the life and career of Keith Herring. You can check it out at herring.com. Herring died of AIDS on February 16, 1990. He was only 31 years old. His memorial was held in May of that year and was attended by well over a thousand people. I hope you've enjoyed this look back on the life and career of Keith Haring, one of the most unique and philanthropic artists in recent history. Like so many of the topics of the Pop Culture Retrospective podcast, I was not super familiar with Keith Haring or his work, but now that I have educated myself a bit, and hopefully you lovely listeners as well, I can officially say that I am a huge Keith Haring fan. While his life and professional endeavors were cut way too short, his legacy lives on more than 30 years after his death. Herring's artwork is in permanent collections and galleries and museums all over the world in places like Amsterdam, Paris, and New York. You can also purchase apparel with Herring's artwork on it. For instance, you can buy a pair of Doc Martens called the Keith Herring 1461. 
They are white and have his figures outlined in black. You can also get a pair of white Converse Chuck Taylors with a classic Keith Haring design on them. Further, Haring's artwork lives on in some of the very few Christmas albums I can actually tolerate listening to without rolling my eyes so much that I have a headache. A Very Special Christmas, which was first released in 1987, has several album sequels. It features some decent covers and original holiday songs performed by celebrities like Run DMC, Mary J. Blige, Enya, it's a blast from the past, Smashing Pumpkins, The Pointer Sisters, and Dave Matthews, among many, 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 many others. There are at least seven A Very Special Christmas albums and several live albums. Each album pretty much uses the same art piece created by Herring, which features an adult-sized character and radiating figure holding a small baby-like figure. All of the proceeds from the albums go to the Special Olympics, so between the great music, fabulous album covers, and supporting an amazing cause, I definitely suggest you check out those albums. That's how we knew the Christmas decoration fun was about to begin when we popped that into our ginormous stereo. Anyways, if you are enjoying the Pop Culture Retrospective podcast, please tell your friends and family about the show. Please also rate the show on Apple Podcasts. The more we spread the word, the more listeners will find the show. And I wanted to say thank you so much for your patience as I rolled out this episode. It's been a pretty busy summer with a lot of traveling, things like that, which is great. But I'm hopeful that as we approach August and September, I'll be able to get back to my regular schedule of releasing a show every two weeks. Fingers crossed. I hope you'll join me for my next show where we will be discussing my sister's adolescent crush, Gavin Rosdale, and the band Bush. Until then, be kind, be safe, and hold on to your memories.